0: by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. In Matthew 3:13 through 17 Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, with whom I am well pleased. The word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Lindsay. Good morning again, church family. How are you? No, really. How are you? Like, I ask that as a real question. Like, not to just tell me, you know, what you're supposed to say, but... I don't know, think about it for a second. How are you? Things could be better. better. If I'm being completely honest, um, I've been a little depressed over the last week or two. I took my dogs for a walk the other day, which requires me to walk essentially through my neighbor's yard. Don't worry, they're okay with it. Um, And this neighbor really decorates well for Christmas. Um, And as I went to walk the dogs through the yard, I was welcomed by this, um, which is their their, like reindeer that's been terrifying our dogs for several months, just falling over. Just, I don't know what happened, might've been wind, whatever it was, but I just felt like he was speaking for us all in that moment. I mean it just felt like a metaphor for life the week after Christmas maybe even beyond. I'm not 100% sure why I've been so down. I mean to be honest with you at least me I'm 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 a very emotional and sort of an emotionally complex person and so sometimes it's hard to separate out what's uh, like real and what's just stuff that, I, I don't know, undealt with, who knows, right? I mean, we're all complicated, and sometimes it can be hard to sort out, why do I feel the way that I do? But I do have some theories as to why I might have been a little bit down in the dumps over the last couple of weeks. First, I think it's possible that some of it is just natural, right? Seasonal affective disorder is real. Matter of fact, sometimes I wonder if just calling a disorder is wrong, because I think maybe we all just feel sort of bad when everything is just brown and dead and gross and gray, right? I mean, right now, the sun is up for like nine hours a day. I took the family to um, a, a women's basketball game in Chapel Hill, and we were driving, and I was like, oh my gosh, it feels like midnight. What time is it? It was 6.30. That's ridiculous right life in general right now just feels like a movie in black and white or sepia tones it's just terrible and we can be super judgy sometimes in the church about like old pagan winter solstice festivals and like yeah i mean they there was sort of misguided worship in a lot of ways but right now i kind of get it right like like the athenians in acts 17 like they didn't know really what they were worshiping it was sort of a nameless thing that they were trying to worship but at least they got intuitively that this is just a hard time of year to be human. And so they created rituals and things to try to help them hold on to some kind of light and life in the middle of darkness and death, right? We, on the other hand, in all of our modern wisdom, we try to create the hap, hap, happiest day of the year, and whistle past the graveyard for a month, then just drop people into the dead of winter with two months of gray and nothing to look forward to ahead of them and just be like, they'll be fine. They're resilient. (laughs) Second, I think that some of this sort of depression might just have to do with consumerism. Obviously, we live in a consumeristic society. That's almost stupid demons say at this point because it's so obvious. But Christmas again, obviously, has become the crescendo of our consumerism year. And simply put, consumerism is pretty much scientifically proven to make us depressed. A 2012 study or group of studies by a research group at Northwestern University showed that not only does participating in consumerism make you depressed, but simply being environmentally surrounded by consumerism increases depression in several of their experiments, simply showing participants pictures of materialistic goods like cars, electronics, jewelry, etc., as opposed to more neutral images of things like nature and things like that, it led to them reporting higher levels of depression and anxiety. Just looking at pictures, even if you're not actually doing the buying, when you're surrounded by consumerism, it has a tendency to make you feel depressed and anxious. And if I really think about it, I honestly think I might be this depressed after Christmas every year. I feel like it's just become my norm, and I suspect that this is at least part of the reason why. And of course, there is a fair bit of irony in the fact that we now have made Christmas what we call the most wonderful time of year, perhaps the season or the day that's actually most likely to make us depressed. That's nuts. Finally, and I think this relates to the idea of consumerism pretty closely. But I think we've made Christmas in our culture the ultimate expression of the quick-fix mentality. Christmas in our culture, at this point, I think is less a holiday and more a utopian myth. And despite all my cynicism that we talk a lot about during December and me being habitually called a Scrooge or a Grinch or perhaps a Scrinch if you're feeling creative... The truth is, deep down, every year, somehow, I still drink the Kool-Aid. Somehow, even though I know intellectually that none of it's true, I still buy into the myth that Christmas is somehow going to magically make everything okay. As if Christmas is like this magical, emotional, and spiritual reset button. Like life is a Nintendo game. (sighs) Just blow in the cartridge and push reset. We're all good. And the day or the week after Christmas, all the young people, if there are any young people in here, was like, what's he talking about? Blowing in a cartridge. All the old folks are like, oh yeah, we know. We used to do that too. What's wrong with the game? I don't know. (laughs) It's fine now. (laughs) And the day or week after Christmas though, is when this utopian myth that we live in for a month or more comes crashing into reality. All the new furniture people gave you has to be put together now. The game that your son was super excited to get and you loved watching his face light up when he got it. Guess what, mom and dad? Now you have to play it. A lot. And it makes no sense whatsoever. And it takes six hours to play and six weeks to learn and still nobody gets it and yet the kids are still being super competitive about it even though they don't know the rules. Congrats. You drank the utopian Kool-Aid and all you got was your normal life just with different end tables. Go team. Now, as I've been coping with these post-Christmas failed utopia blues, I've also been learning that the church historically had a very different vision for Christmas and the time following it. As you all know, a little over a year ago, we started following the Revised Common Lectionary, which has been really educational for me, I will say, and probably for Curtis as well. We, you know, low church Protestants, we think a lot about the texts of the Bible, but we don't often think much about time and the timing of the texts, and how you organize your year in the rhythms of worship. So following the liturgical year has been a really enlightening experience for me. And what I discovered this week is that the historical vision for Christmas is very different from what we've created in our culture. And I think it could even, if we could figure out how to follow it and worship through that method again, it might even be an antidote to our modern post-Christmas malaise. Here's the general outline of le- the liturgical seasons surrounding Christmas. First, obviously, we have Advent, which begins on the fourth Sunday before Christmas and runs all the way up to December 25th. As we discussed in December, Advent is not Christmas. Advent is not supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year. It's supposed to be a time of waiting. And longing in anticipation. It is, in a sense, to Christmas what Lent is to Easter. Perhaps some of our problem is simply the fact that we're trying to feast when we're supposed to be fasting. And then Advent, of course, brings us to actual Christmas Day on December 25th. But unlike in cultural Christmas, Christmas in the liturgical year is not a day. It's a season. So Christmas gives way to Tide or the 12 days of Christmas. Christmas, in historic Christian worship, is a 12-day feast which continues the celebration of the Incarnation. Wait, you're saying, you mean that stupid Christmas song actually has a real background? Yes. Yes. This 12-day Christmas feast contains several other observations while we're continuing to celebrate Christmas. On December 26th, we have the Feast of St. Stephen. Stephen was the first martyr in Acts chapter 7. So this is a day that we celebrate all of those who have given their lives for Jesus in the kingdom. And Stephen was also known for giving to the poor, so the, the feast is typically celebrated by giving gifts to the poor as well. So Christmas is about Jesus' birth, but it's also connecting us to the realities of death and poverty and suffering almost immediately. Then December 27th is the Feast of St. John the Evangelist. And according to church tradition, John is the only one of the 12 apostles that was not martyred. He actually lived a full life and died of old age. And John also authored several books of the Bible, the Gospel of John, his letters, and revelations. So this day celebrates long life and the intellectual life of faith. Then December 28th, we have the Feast of the Holy Innocents, which honors the children in and around Bethlehem who were murdered at Herod's command as he sought to eliminate Jesus when he was born. So immediately after Christmas, in the liturgical year, and while you're still celebrating Christmas, you have three days that celebrate the full breadth of life and life experience. People who are victims because of the world's reaction to the kingdom of God and to Jesus. People who are martyred for God's kingdom and people who live a long life of struggle trying to follow Jesus and serve the kingdom. And then later in the overall feast, on January 1st, you have the Feast of the Circumcision and Holy Name, which celebrates Jesus being circumcised and named on the eighth day according to Jewish custom, which of course then connects him to his own people, to Israel, and the long story of God's work in the world. So Christmas is not just Christmas. Christmas is 12 days of Christmas. And then that gives way to the epiphany of the Lord on January 6th. Epiphany marks the beginning of the proclamation of the gospel to the world. And it usually, as has already been alluded to multiple times in the service, focuses on the story of the Magi coming to visit the child Jesus. We actually don't know whether it was baby Jesus or child Jesus, who knows? We don't, we're not given the timing, but he comes and visits this child king. This story is a sign and a foretaste of how the gospel is going to be proclaimed to every nation of the world. And so then the day of Epiphany begins the season of Epiphany or Epiphany Tide, which begins January 6th, as I said, and then goes all the way to the Sunday before Lent, which is February 19th this year. And the season of Epiphany then focuses on the revelation of God in Jesus as a whole and focuses on Jesus's ministry and the theme of his kingdom and his rule in the world. And the first Sunday of Epiphany, which is today, is the day we celebrate the baptism of the Lord. So the moral of the story is, in the historic Christian vision for Christmas worship, Christmas is not a day in isolation. It's the start of a season, a season that is rich and multifaceted. And makes space for the full breadth of human experience. Birth to death. Sadness and joy. And rather than this huge build up to a triumphant moment, which then usually feels like an epic letdown, it starts low and humble and builds like a real life story. Kind of like Jesus. And I just wonder if... If we could worship that way, might our Christmas experience be different? How might we reclaim that when we get there next year as well? Now, we're going to come back to all of this. But since today is the day of the baptism of the Lord, I obviously want to focus on that for a few minutes. So let's read that story again for good measure. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. I am well pleased. Now, this is a fascinating and mysterious story, which raises as many questions as it answers. What was the nature precisely of John's baptism? And how did it relate to other forms of ritual immersion or baptism that already existed at the time? In Hebrew, mikvah. And how does John's baptism then relate to the Christian sacrament of baptism that would come after Jesus' death and resurrection? There is continuity between all three of those, and yet they're all different. And we could have hours of conversations about that. Also, why did Jesus want or need to be baptized at all? I mean, the idea of the creator of the universe who made water, Being baptized by one of his created beings in water is a mind bending mystery that makes the tesseract scene from Interstellar look like cakewalk. The great theologian, Chance the Rapper, says in one of his recent songs, Child of God, the world should have capsized when God got baptized. I love that lyric because it captures the sentiment that i feel when i'm reading this story the theological term for all of this is <laughs> but for all its mysteries this text is actually quite clear about some things particularly its symbolism john comes or excuse me jesus comes to john to be baptized in the jordan river The Jordan River is where the Israelites initially crossed into the promised land after the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. When they did that, Joshua, Moses' successor, stopped the waters of the Jordan so that they could pass by on dry land, which was, of course, a recapitulation of Moses parting the waters of the Sea of Reeds in the Exodus. And, of course, the parting of the waters in Exodus Itself was a symbolic recreation of the creation story in Genesis 1, where God parted the primordial waters of chaos so he could make the world and everything in it. Now, beyond this, the baptism story is saturated, pun intended, with creation imagery. When Jesus comes out of the water, the Spirit alights upon him like a dove. In Jesus' time, in rabbinic commentaries on the book of Genesis, a dove had become the image of God's Spirit hovering over the waters of creation in Genesis 1. And as the dove hovers over Jesus and over the waters, God's voice speaks. It says, this is my Son whom I love. As our psalm made clear today, God's voice speaking is the agent of creation. His voice commanded the primordial waters and spoke the world into existence. So this story of Jesus' baptism, the event that essentially begins his ministry, has this fascinating kind of telescoping effect to it. Looking back and expanding its lens across all the great stories in the history of God's people. The entry into the promised land. And their sacred vocation, then to the Exodus and their sacred liberation, and then to the very very creation of the world and the purpose of humanity itself. And all of this in this story of Jesus' baptism is pointing to the idea of new creation. In Jesus, God is enacting a new act of creation, which will create a new people who will remake the world. By being what humanity and then Israel was always called to be in the first place. Stewards and caretakers of creation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now here's the point. Putting these two conversations together. In the historical liturgical tradition, Christmas isn't a day like we've made it. And it's not a culmination of something. Christmas is the beginning of something. It's the beginning of a new story. It's the beginning of a story that leads us first here to Jesus' baptism and ministry, to a commission of vocation, to work that needs to be done. And that work is, again, nothing short of making a new creation in the midst of the old, a new people, a new world. Not just in our hearts and minds where we can feel all warm and fuzzy, but in the real world, right here, right now, among us, together. In cultural Christmas, Christmas is the climax of something. We present Christmas like it's the resolution which is why I think it often feels like such a letdown. But in liturgical Christmas, Christmas is just the beginning. It's the beginning of all the work that we're called to do, work that is deeply and inherently incarnational. It is practical, salt-of-the-earth, dirt-under-your-fingernails type stuff, stuff that requires people and teamwork and commitment and relationships. So as we start a new year in this season of epiphany, beginning, so to speak, in the waters of baptism, I think there's something really important that we need to be reminded of. And that's that the gospel is all about incarnation while we live in an excarnational world. I don't know if you've actually heard that word or that term before, excarnational. It's a fairly new word that theologians have begun to use as they wrestle with the struggles of being the church in the modern world. We live in a world that's becoming increasingly excarnational, meaning out of the body, separate from the body. And sadly, the church is often Following the culture's lead on this We're not quite in the metaverse yet But with cell phones and social media and televisions and many more things like that More and more our lives are becoming mediated by technology and we're living increasingly atomized lives alienated from both the physical world around us and from one another And this was happening way before the smartphone existed. I just finished reading Robert Putnam's famous book, Bowling Alone, which was published in the year 2000. And even then, long before smartphones and social media, an enormous body of research was revealing a dark and potentially dangerous truth, that community... And embodied existence had been declining for decades, replaced by independence and isolation from one another. Churches, civic organizations, nonprofits, local politics, bowling leagues, sports leagues, they've all been in deep decline since roughly 1970. And even in our personal lives, as we just live every day, people spend less time with friends, have fewer friends, and go to fewer social gatherings than we ever have at any point. Families spend less time playing games together, having conversations, eating dinner at the dinner table together. And Putnam identifies several causes and cultural shifts that contribute to this, but one of the simplest and main culprits, in his estimation, was just the television. Shifting our mode of engagement with the world and with life from active and communal to passive and individual. And of course, all the technologies we've invented since then have accelerated these trends exponentially. Our culture has, becoming, has been becoming more and more excarnational for at least half a century. We don't want the burdens and inconveniences of embodied existence. We want freedom and safety and control. And we are constantly building new technologies to provide ourselves those illusions But it should also come as no surprise to us that as a culture, we are more depressed, more divided, more lonely, and more pessimistic than ever as well. And that's not my assessment. There's a lot of research. Christmas, the epiphany, the baptism of Jesus are all about incarnation, about making the story of faith more real, more tangible, not less. They remind us that we've got work to do in this world. And that work is all incarnational. Here, in the real world, face-to-face, embodied, in community. In faith, simply put, there is no excarnational option. When we live excarnationally, we are living at odds with the God of the universe. Life, love, and joy cannot be found excarnationally. So as we start a new year, I just, I want to challenge you and I want to ask you to ask yourselves, how can you become more incarnational this year? How can you resist the tide of our excarnational world and become more incarnational, more embodied, more enmeshed in community and real life with people? And I want to give you just three simple suggestions. Nature. Community and church. First, nature. Create a discipline of getting out in nature. Once a day or once a week, whenever you can do it. Take a walk or something else if you're a more adventurous person. But do something to be reminded that you are a part of a world. A creation that you are connected to and you've always been called to be a steward of. Second, community, relationships. In The Gift of Being Yourself, David Benner says this Moving truths, such as God loves me, from our head to our heart is often difficult. It is possible, but only as we journey with others. The God who is divine community is only known in human community. Deep knowing of perfect love, just like deep knowing of ourselves, demands that we be in relationships of spiritual friendship. Our excarnational world has taken its greatest toll on relationships and on communities. And the pandemic only exacerbated this problem. So whether it's joining a small group or finding an accountability partner or two, or making up some absurd, ridiculous name like Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants and cultivating a small group of friends informally, however you can invest in at least a couple of people or a couple of relationships with people who are walking this journey of faith with you, find a way to do so. And then finally, church. And it might seem weird to make church a separate category from community because church is community and vice versa. But here's what I'm thinking and why I made it two separate things. Because we need both small scale friendships and a large body of a worshiping community to belong and be connected to. This worship gathering that we hold every week is sacred. We're an informal group. That's pretty obvious at this point. But informality does not diminish the sacredness of the exercise that we are a part of. We are called to be a microcosm of heaven. We are a body, a collection of people called to serve one another and show up for one another, not just when we think we have a personal need but because of the sacred mystery that someone else might need our presence that day. And just by showing up, you might lift up someone else when they don't have the strength to stand alone. Candidly, we've always struggled a little bit in this church community with consistent, committed attendance. We just have. Because we have so many people who've attended church in their past because of guilt and shame and have felt like they were in abusive environments and because we've always really wanted to not be that and we've always really wanted to be a comfortable, safe space and we always will be. But to only show up when you feel like you need it is to buy into the excarnational lie that this is just all about you or me as an individual. Or the excarnational lie that church is only about content, not community. So you can accomplish it without being actually physically present with a group of people. And we're grateful for technology that allows people to be at church when they're sick and all of that. Gosh, we're dealing with all sorts of crazy things in our culture, but we need each other. Church attendance is not the be-all and end-all of the spiritual life, but this is one of the simple ways that we get to practice being incarnational, where we affirm that faith is lived out in the real world and our lives are bound up inextricably with others. So this year may we have the courage to resist and swim against the growing tide of excarnation and recommit ourselves to the messy, sometimes uncomfortable, often inconvenient, but always life-giving way of the incarnation. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the epiphany. We thank you for the baptism of Jesus. We thank you for the reminder that Christmas is only the beginning, that Christmas is the start of a story that calls us into a sacred vocation, a vocation that always has been and always will be done incarnationally and in community. It does take countercultural, countercultural Wisdom and courage to be incarnational in an excarnational world. We pray that you would help us to do that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.